Welcome to the Batman Tasticast, celebrating the 30th anniversary of the greatest animated television series of all time, Batman, the animated series. Our podcast offers a deep dive into each episode and a full series retrospective from two nerds who really like Batman. And across the table from me, what do you he's got? a game master in his own right, Mr. Jordan Hugh. Riddle me this, riddle me that. Who's the best co-host on the show about the bat? It's Mike Staub. Well, I think that's a little too much, but I appreciate it. I think the Riddler's a little too much. I think the Riddler is a little too much. But we love it. I love it. it this episode is is great. Uh, this We are talking about season one, episode 40. If you are so smart. 40 episodes, by the way. If you are so smart, why aren't you rich? I Yeah, this is a great episode. What? <clears throat> I can't believe it takes them 40 episodes to get to Riddler. Riddler. And sometimes this is like um, a, a broadcast issue. It's not, because this is broadcast 41, and it's production 40. So regardless of which side you took this on, you wait a long time to get to the Riddler. Oh, absolutely. Especially since he's one of the big, what, three or four Batman villains? Yeah, that's what's so funny. It's not like he's some random fan favorite character. The Riddler is a major Batman villain. He's usually in folks like the top four or five villains, if not the top three for many people. I think for me, he's top three. Yeah. And and yet you waited 40 episodes to get him. That is kind of an anomaly. No, I agree. I agree fully that it's weird how you, it takes so long to get specifically to the Riddler and he has a great episode. This is a great introduction of the character, but he's only in, what, two episodes? He's in Maybe th- three? He's in three. Uh, he's in three where he is the main character. He is in, uh, if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? He's in, um, oh, what the hell? Uh, what is reality? Yes. Right, and then Riddler's Reform. And it's just those three where he is the main villain. And then he appears as like a cameo in a few other episodes. Yeah. And I feel like the last episode that he's in is way towards the end of the series. Riddler's Reform? Yeah, right? It's in season two. It's, oh, not, okay. it's not all the way at the all end. All right. Well, maybe I'm, I'm incorrect about that. So. Well, I, I mean, we'll see him other times. I mean, he has a really terrible rebooted version of him that you also barely see once the show changes its art style. Yeah. Um, I feel like... We'll talk about that later. I feel like most of the characters look worse after the the change. Yeah, that's that's true. He is the worst. Yeah. I think he has the worst switchover. It's him and Catwoman. Catwoman I think, is uh, horrific. It's, it's the worst. Horrific, yeah. um, I'll say this. I th- I'm pretty sure this is why we see so little of the Riddler in the animated series. So Paul Dini claimed that the Riddler had the honor. I'm, I'm quoting here. The Riddler had the honor of being the most difficult villain to write episodes for because he is a cerebral villain whose main criminal motive was outsmarting others rather than generic mayhem or vengeance. There was also difficulty in coming up with compelling riddles for episode content. The reasons explain the Riddler's relatively few appearances in Batman the Animated Series, given his relatively important status in DC's comic books. Yeah, and he's been a Batman villain for how long? Like, I, I actually don't know, but yeah, I'm, I'm very, sure he's a Golden Age villain. Yeah, very, very long time, the Riddler. Obviously, he was... He's a staple member of the Rogues Gallery. Definitely, and one of the... One of the most memorable characters on the 66 TV show, as well as uh, one of the villains in Batman Forever, as played by (laughs) Jim Carrey. Now, I feel like this version of the Riddler in Batman the Animated Series is one of the closest representations to him in the comic books. Yeah. And even if we compare it to the Batman with uh, Paul Dano's version of the Riddler, Mm. who is kind of like this kind of 8chan (laughs) internet terrorist... Incel. I feel like uh, this version of the Riddler is is very very close to what we would expect out of the comic books with the green bowler hat and the jacket yeah. and all that stuff as well. I and, I love this depiction, but it's interesting because we kind of catch the Riddler in the animated series uh, design wise. He's sort of mid pivot, right? Because they're trying to pivot away from the Gorshin performance in the '66 Batman. Yeah, and they're pivoting towards what we have in the comics, but he's kind of between those. Yeah. I'm not saying he's like the madman with the veins popping out of his forehead. Like, I don't know what Frank Gorshin was up to. Jeez. Yeah, I have no idea. Uh, but um, uh, he's not totally where he's at in the comics. No. First of all, they kind of reimagined him as a video game designer, which is not anything that was ever part of the character, which I like. I do like it. But that works. is different. And then they've also kind of made him more... I don't know, he's somehow even more smug and smarmy than we're used to him being. I'll say this, 
after the animated series, the comics kind of said, yep, this is this is yeah. the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's not yet the Riddler that we'll see in, like, big stories like Hush. Mm-hmm. And he's certainly not the, you know, David Fincher-esque Riddler that we got from Paul Dano in yeah. uh, The Batman by you know, Matt Reeves. Yeah, but I do think that the, the video game designer choice is an interesting choice because at this point, 1992, video games have been around for... In a, on a consumer level, almost 20 years, around about 20 years. And it, I think it works with his character. You know, the Edward Nygma starts the episode doing a crossword puzzle. He, his video game that he created has something to do with the riddle riddles. Riddle of the Minotaur. And, and uh, yeah, the Riddle of the Minotaur, even though it should be the Riddle of the Sphinx, right? Correct, yes. yeah. And in fact, the, the Minotaur riddle plays not at all into that Theseus myth, but we can talk about that later. Yeah, of course, of course. And... We have him as a game designer. He works for a big video game company, and his plight... Competitron. Competitron. Stupid. Yeah, it's not a great name. But <laughs> his plight, and the reason why he's fired in the series, which kind of starts his uh, his villain arc, is because he tries to sue the company for royalties for the game he makes. Now, in 1992, and we, we, we can talk about how this is very modern as well... In 1992, this is really a parallel to what happened in the comic book industry, specifically at Marvel Comics, when Todd McFarlane, Rob Liefeld, Jim Lee, Greg Capullo... This is the image crew. This is the image crew, who pretty much all left... Oh, man... uh, I'm totally drawing a blank on who was who who did Savage Dragon. That's okay. You named more than I could. Yeah. <laughs> so these guys, they essentially were the biggest creators in comic books, the biggest artists in, artists artists in comic books at the time. They were pretty much like the golden children that were selling books upon books upon books upon books. Right. And if you listen to Todd McFarlane tell the story, uh, he was on an episode of, uh, shoot, I forget what show he was on, but I listened to him tell the story that he gathered up these guys when he was sick of dealing with like standards and practices at Marvel. He gathered up this crew of guys and was like, we're going to create our own company, user-owned content. And then he went across the street to DC and he warned DC and some of those guys left too. Pretty much what happened in the, in the comic book industry in those days, if you created a character, right? If you created Spider-Man, if you created Batman, if you created Superman or... Wolverine or whoever, it was the big company that owned it. They owned the character based on, I guess, whatever their agreement was. Right. And what these guys did with Image is they were like, no, if you created the character, you own it and we print the comic books for you and you'll get money uh, for that. What Edward Nygma does is he creates this hit game for Competitron games and he doesn't own it. So I feel like him trying to sue them was kind of current when they were dealing with, you know, what the artists were doing at that point in time, the comic yeah. book industry. Mm-hmm. For sure. And, and now we're seeing it, as you put in the notes, Jordan, that this is also very current to now with re- recording this during a, during a, a Writer's Guild Yeah, strike. WGA strike is going on right now. So, uh, yeah, I think it's actually wonderful that the episode is so clearly, uh, even though, um, uh, what, what the hell's the guy, the villain's name in this? Oh, uh, yeah, the guy, the villain's name in this episode is, hold on, uh, Mockridge. Mockridge, thank you. Um, even though Mockridge is the villain uh, of the episode, no, I mean to say, even though Mockridge is the victim in this yeah. episode, he's clearly also the villain. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, as much as the Riddler is a bad guy, it's clearly the the corporate guy yeah. who's the bad person in this, because this episode is very pro-artist and pro-writer. Um, in other words... Riddler would be on the WGA side. Yeah, of course, because they you know. essentially stole his game and made. Well, not they didn't steal his game. He did sign a contract, but yeah, the contract well, is predatory. Competitron is basically stealing his intellectual property. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really enjoy that they're using the Riddler to kind of tell this story and make this point. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really cool. It's really relevant, and I think we all want to live in a society or in a world where the artist is the one making the money and the corporation is benefiting, but they're not the primary benefactor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think we see this in all arts industries. I think we see it in music industry where mm-hmm. bands get like a fraction Nothing. of a cent yeah. every time their song is played or downloaded. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, uh, yeah, for a time saw it in comics. I'm sure we still do to some extent. And now, of course, we're seeing it now, right now with writers who are saying, 
guys, we're creating these shows. We're creating these characters. We're writing. We're busting our asses. We just want to share in the enormous wealth that now the streaming services are making that we don't get paid for. Yeah, yeah, especially when it comes to royalties and everything after the shows are picked up by yeah, the well, streaming channels. Yeah, because streamers are basically trying to kill residuals is one yeah. of the major things. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. just, that is the bread and butter for a lot of people. And mm-hmm. writers, I think people don't have like a good... Th- like uh, imagining of what a writer's life is like the writers are not wealthy people no. the writers are normal people who who generally speaking don't make a ton of money yes there are prominent writers who are very wealthy and very well known and probably very famous but your day-to-day you know workaholic writer is not making anything so different from a, a, a quote-unquote regular job yeah. you know we, we just want to see those people get paid yeah yeah or you know get some piece of that residual stuff i totally get that right and uh clearly this is what Edward Nigma is suing Competitron for. He's yeah. suing them for for royalties, essentially. Uh, when they do eventually show the riddle of the Minotaur game, I, I laughed a little bit because in 1992, we are in the early years of the Super Nintendo, which is, I think, in its second year in the United States in 92. Okay. This, the point being, at the time this is made, video games are very popular. Very popular. They're finally starting to like break through in terms of like more of the mainstream now they're not quite there yet i think the sony playstation really does it and the playstation 2 obviously really really does it but at this point in time uh they do show the video game it's uh it's a computer game dick grayson plays it on the back computer which i find hilarious but it's at this point where when you look at it and i look at the riddle of the minotaur as a game and and like the actual footage from what robin is playing what robin is playing and i'm looking at it and he's like this is the best game ever i'm like it looks like something really bad off the Atari. It actually looks very, very similar to the game Adventure on the Atari. Yeah. Which is like this kind of, you know, top-down maze kind of game. Even the Minotaur in the game and the uh, the Griffin in the game looks like the dragon does in in uh, Atari's Adventure, which is a game from 1980 okay, uh, on the Atari 2600, which is a home video game console. So question for you, and I, I'm not yeah, someone yeah. who really knows very much about video game history. I know you do. So the aesthetic of Batman the Animated Series is maybe 1930s, but really soupy, somewhere in 1930s to late 1950s. Mm-hmm. We're not really sure. That is the aesthetic, even though they often incorporate technology, yeah. obviously, that is far beyond that. Yeah. When would be the earliest, conceivably, we could have a game like the kind we see Robin playing, like an adventure type game? So, I mean, it's it's a little weird. Like, are uh, we pretty far on from like those MS DOS games, like the text based type thing? So, so a little bit. So, the first video game, the first computer game, is a game called Space War, which was developed in 1962. Uh, okay. by a couple of folks over well probably more, more than a couple of folks that's but th- not that far from where the aesthetic could not, be not not space war was done on a mainframe computer so a computer that was essentially the size of a of a wing of a building oh, okay, or a giant room <laughs> so you need like hard act yeah, or the back yeah, computer yes. to be able to play yeah, it yeah 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 so that's in 1962 at MIT so video games were essentially created at MIT okay. because those nerds wanted to figure out how hey we can use computers to have fun ah, bunch of nerds bunch of nerds and the first com- consumer game, the first arcade game, was a game called Space War. I'm sorry, not Space War, Computer Space, which was developed by Nolan Bushnell and Ted Dabney, who would later, on, later a year later, go on to form Atari. For the folks at home, by the way, I want you to know, Mike is doing this with no notes whatsoever. He's I'm just trying. Pull, pulling the shit from I'm the trying. air, which is I'm amazing. I'm trying, I'm trying, because it's... I, I, I do, we are not on the Google machine right now. I do this... I, I, I You know, one of my other jobs is I work with a group called Long Island Retro Gaming and we do a, an expo every year and a lot of retro related stuff so over the years I've, I've learned a lot of this stuff so Ted Dabney and Nolan Bushnell create Computer Space which is kind of an arcaded version it's kind of a rip of Space War which okay. had can't come out nine years earlier or was created nine years early at MIT and uh, they go on to form Atari uh, the first game they make after that is Pong which comes out in 1972 uh, the first com- consumer home video game console is the Magnavox Odyssey, I believe, in 1970 or 1971, which pretty much is a collection of just like table tennis games. So that's where Pong kind of comes from. So we would say the design here that we see of Riddle of the Minotaur is meant to uh, harken back to the appearance of some of those. Yeah, I would say I would say really 1980. 
uh, is when Adventure comes out. So around then, you have Zork, which comes out in 1977, which is a text-based adventure game, which is played on computers. So I feel like the Riddle of the Minotaur is kind of something along the lines of like Zork meets Adventure. And on top of that, uh, if anyone's watched the the uh, wonderful Netflix uh, Choose Your Own Adventure game, really, slash movie Bandersnatch. Which was awesome. Which is amazing. Uh, I would definitely suggest anyone who's into video game or into like weird Twilight Zone horror stuff. There's also a weird Sphinx hidden in that yeah, thing too. Yeah, there is. There is. You got to find it. Um, it's kind of similar to that game too. So it's very much like, I would say like sat- Satanic Panic era turn of the you know the decade 1977 1980 like very much in the star wars (laughs) zone uh which is when a game like this would be possible so it is far removed from something like space war and batman's aesthetic but there's a couple of things in this episode that break the aesthetic a little bit we'll get into that a little later but this is definitely a game that from visually, it's kind of based off of... It uh, looks like Atari's Adventure and a game that, you know, the creators of the show probably played when they were in high school or college. Sure. I just love that the rationale here seemed to be like, hey, we're going to kind of ignore the 50s aesthetic for a minute yeah. or the 30s, 50s aesthetic, and we're going to just, hey, make a video game. But it's so funny because they don't go to a 90s video game. No. They go to like, hey, cusp of the 70s, 80s. This is what video games look like. And I, I still like that choice because it's antiquated, but it's... We get what they're going for. Well, you know what I mean? Also, you know, to those of us watching the show now, if they were playing something like Super Mario Brothers or The Legend of Zelda, while those games look old at this point because they're 40 years old at this point or 35 years old, at the same time, there's something... The Atari era games are so simplistic yeah. that they look even older. So like this looks it looks like a relic of history when you go and sit down and play an Atari right. game because mm-hmm. you're supposed to use so much of your imagination to take make pretty much heads or tails of like the X's and O's that kind of make right. these games. Yeah, I also just liked that uh, and we'll get to it the manner in which this whole game is solved. Yeah. Uh, the puzzle by which you can actually get to the center of the maze which Robin mentions no one has ever done. Mm-hmm. You have to do by cheating. Yeah. You have to essentially do by finding the easter egg or yeah. breaking the game's code which Batman succeeds in doing. That's why I like Riddler reimagined as a game designer. I like that too cuz Riddler is also very much set to the program and Batman is very much someone who thinks outside the box. Okay, yeah. So obviously, right. you know, Riddler as a as a computer programmer, right? Computer programming follows, you know, the utmost amount of logic where Riddler's Riddler, riddles and the way his puzzle kind of plays out follows logic. It's right. a logic puzzle. Batman, the way in which he thinks about things, and it's interesting because Riddler is probably smarter than Batman, but Batman, as you said earlier in the podcast on another episode, Batman thinks differently. Right. And Batman will cheat, and he will he will think outside the box. He will break the rules. Even his existence breaks the rules as a crime fighter. He will break the rules in order to essentially get the job done. Right. And we see that in this episode, and Batman uses his, his guile to kind of do that sonic boom yeah so uh (laughs) it's one of those things where it's a really cool it's a really cool solution to the puzzle it's very much like when you play we're both uh, game masters right dungeons and dragons sometimes this is a very D &D episode very D &D episode there are times where you know you'll give a party a puzzle and you have a set or maybe a couple of ways they can maybe go through it logically and then they break it. Yep. And then you're like, okay, well, that'll work. And you got to go yes. roll with Riddler it. Riddler is absolutely the dungeon master, in this case, game designer, who says, hey, look, there is one or two ways to do this. And Batman says, okay, great. I'm going to do the 38th way that yeah. someone can do this. Yeah. And you're just not prepared for that. And that's what is neat about this episode. That's And, and Dungeons and Dragons. But yeah. uh, are you willing to, are you ready to get into some IMDb trivia? I'm so ready. This is actually quite a bit for this episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is. Uh, also, this is, I should say, this is a beloved episode. Oh, great episode. People, people love this episode. Uh, even though it does have a healthy, healthy dose of Robin in it. It does. He's the weak part of the episode, unfortunately. <laughs> hey, Batman, I'm playing the best game ever. We'll talk about it. <laughs> Go get a chili dog, man. Oh, boy. Tails! Um, so, IMDb trivia, the, the character Daniel Mockridge, who is both the victim and the villain of this episode, would later go on to make a cameo appearance in Batman Mask of the Phantasm. And I have to believe the model for him is Clark Gable. Oh, yeah. 
with yeah. his little he pencil looks mustache. Exactly like Clark Gable. He also delivers the line of the episode, which is also the title of the yes. episode. If which, you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Which is not something you always get, but uh, sometimes I like when they deliver the, the name of the episode in the episode. It almost never happens. Almost. Almost. But never. sometimes it does. Sometimes. This is the first appearance of the Riddler. His costume is a simpler version of an alternate costume that uh, Frank Gorshin requested during the production of batman 1966 since he did not like the character's unitard costume don't blame him i don't either i don't like it much either uh since the introduction of this version of the character the riddler in the comics has largely abandoned his original costume for that greenish business suit and bowler hat ever since i do like the bowler hat suit i like the combo yeah i like it too uh the computer game which is at the heart of this episode is based on greek mythology according to legend king minos had a monster that was half man, half bull, known as the Minotaur, and he commissions Greece, Greece's greatest genius, Daedalus, to build a labyrinth to keep it in, and uh, which I love that. I love the uh, the whole the story of the Minotaur. Yeah, they don't really lean too much on the myth there, no. though. I, I think famously, just just real quick, the 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 Minotaur puzzle is solved because Theseus, the Greek hero, seduces Ariadne, yeah, and um, she gives him this huge ball of twine, mm-hmm. so he kind of. Um, knows his point of origin in the maze of all time. At all times, that's how he's able to find his way out. Yeah. Um, but they kind of did like a weird like combining this with like the riddle of the Sphinx thing, yeah. which is not a Greek myth. Well, I'm, not, I'm, Egyptian, not, right? I'm not criticizing, by the way. I'm just saying like, oh, it's interesting. They could have probably included other stuff, but maybe just didn't want to. And you do notice that because there are riddles and there are puzzles and there are these things in this show, you can tell the moments where like, all right, we got our education credit taken care of. Mm, yeah, like it's like go. they're hitting a the checklist throughout the whole thing. Right. Some of the sound effects though heard in this episode. Uh, in the Riddle of the Minotaur game are very similar to that of uh, Super Mario Brothers series <laughs> of video games, which, yeah, when you go and watch it, you're like, oh, yeah, that's just the jump sound. Mm. And it's very, very similar. But uh, no one at Nintendo sued them, and we all know that Nintendo is very uh, lawsuit happy. So they do they, not do that. They, are. they do They do like to protect their IP. Uh, and then we have John Glover, uh, the voice of the Riddler, also played Lionel Luthor in the live-action Superman TV series. But yeah. I think you've got some more on John Glover, too. You, John, John Glover's sort of one of our big names that we have in the animated series. He's an actor with, again, about a million credits, film and television, and stage, by the way. He's a terrific stage actor. Um, but I, I think a lot of folks might remember John Glover as Dr. Woodrow in yeah. Batman and Robin. He played Poison Ivy's boss. Um, technically, he's the creator of Bane in that Joel Schumacher oh! universe. Um, Woodrow is also one of the alter egos for the Floronic Man yeah. in the comics. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, obviously, they never got to do, Glover to do that, but that would have been interesting. He's a treat. Um, Glover was also, this is very interesting, he was one of the three actors who were up for the Joker in the animated series. So it was Tim Curry, Mark Hamill, and John Glover. Um, ultimately, they went with Tim Curry, and they actually recorded Curry. Glover, they kind of reassigned to the Riddler, and then, of course, we ended up with Mark Hamill as the Joker. So Which, John Glover's kind of, like, tied to this series in multiple ways. I think everything worked out for the better. We got the best version of whatever that was going to be. It was unfortunate that we couldn't get Tim Curry in some other role, because yeah. his Joker just didn't really work out, and it wasn't, frankly, wasn't that good. Sort of yeah. wasn't as good as Mark Hamill's. I would have loved to seen Curry as something else. I think he would have made a dynamite penguin, but they yeah. didn't go in that direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? I think that would have been excellent. Yeah. Uh, I think that's actually a great, great pick there. And, uh, yeah, so that's our IMDb trivia. Are you ready to hop in? Yeah, I actually have, like, quite a few topics for discussion, but, like, I think they're actually... No, I think they're better in the episode. Sure. If we can just kind of stop off. Yeah, we can totally do that. Um, But I will say I was so happy. Like, if I can just sort of conclude initial thoughts, this was one of my favorite episodes when I was a kid. Yeah. And I was happy to see it held up as an adult, and I, I haven't really watched this episode in many years. I remember making my own version of this maze like on just, you know, pen and paper yeah. and like drawing all of it. And I actually might credit this episode and the subsequent two Riddler episodes as being one of the reasons why I'm really into game design and into yeah. Dungeons and Dragons and being a dungeon master because I liked the way the Riddler did things. Yeah. Um, and I just, this episode left a huge impression on me. I mean, you could tell. And I think that's really, really cool. And also the fact that the the, the maze in the game is a fantasy maze and a fantasy it is. game. It's, clearly, it's awesome. Clearly inspired by D&D. I imagine Bruce, Tim, and Paul Dini played Dungeons and Dragons in high school and or college and yeah. hid it from their friends, which is something you did in the 70s or 80s. Yeah. I also have a little theory about why they do this, but we'll get to that oh, yeah. right Let's at the end. It. Yeah. Let's get it. All right. So we uh, break in with our theme song. Thank you. Uh, thank you to um, 
Oingo Boingo. Um, <laughs> uh, Danny Elfman could Danny play Elfman. the Riddler. Da- Danny Elfman could play the Riddler. He's a carrot top. Oh, what's up with no one to go? I do like uh, I do like um, Danny Elfman quite a bit. We get the title card. We see the green maze in the center, resembling uh, it's resembling a question mark. Uh, the maze is green and black, matching the Riddler's color scheme. We see written by David Wise, not the composer of the Donkey Kong Country games, just another David Wise. And directed by Eric Radomski. David Wise, creator of Bebop and Rocksteady. That 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 creator of Bebop and Rocksteady from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What are you going to do, boss? <laughs> oh, my eye. Hit him. Oh, he's dead. <laughs> David Wise did a few episodes of this series. I'm yeah. not sure. I think we might have already covered one, actually. But um, he's, he's great. I do love Bebop and Rocksteady. Yeah. All right. Episode opens. The exterior of Competitron Games. Yep. Maker of Riddle of the Minotaur, which is on the building, folks. It's an office building in Gotham City. We then hear Mr. Mockridge asking his assistant if Mr. Nigma has come in yet. She says, I don't think so. And he says, good. I guess we can gather that something bad is going to happen to Edward Nigma. Mm-hmm. We see a set of elevator doors open as... Uh, people exit the elevator, and then we see who we can assume to be Edward Nigma exiting the elevator, blowing through a crossword puzzle as he traverses the cubicle farm of his office. What a distinct appearance he has. I know, right? Also, I couldn't believe how long this opening sequence is yeah, with there's yeah, essentially yeah. no action. None. He's just walking. Just walking uh, for a bit. This is the kind of action you can't get in modern cartoons no. where um, they're willing to spend like 20, 30 seconds on just like, yeah, you see him, he's walking, he's doing a crossword puzzle. Yeah. Like that's... Not even one scene. That's it's a, great. Yeah, it's establishing it's establishing some kind of, I don't know if it's world building, I don't know what it is, but it's establishing a mood. Yes, he it's has a very neat, cartoony, distinct appearance, yes. Edward Nigma. Mm-hmm. He then tosses the crossword book aside and goes to open the door to his office, which is locked. There's a janitor nearby, and he asks the janitor, what's up about this and his office and why his office used to be here and why it's locked, and the janitor... Holding the nameplate that says Enigma on it or Edward Nigma on it, he says his office was there and he tosses the nameplate in the garbage. And then Nigma starts questioning the janitor and then he's interrupted by Mockridge, who, as you said, looks very much like Clark Gable. He tells him that he's fired. Enigma suggests, argues uh, that they'll be finished without him and that they can't do this. And Mockridge says, yeah, they can, especially if you're going to sue us for royalties. So then we're getting the whole mm-hmm. residual argument we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, I gather we can assume that Nigma has tried to sue Competitron for royalties of the game he built, Riddle of the Minotaur. And Nigma continues to say that they've made millions off of his game, to which Mockridge says that Competitron's state, uh, strength is not the games, which, okay, uh, I studied the video game industry for a very long time, and the best video game companies on the planet know that the strength is always the games. Yeah, it's always the games. It's and even if your game is predatory and filled with games of service and microtransactions, if the game isn't good, nobody will play it. And that's the Nintendo lesson. No matter when you make a game, no matter how long it takes, you know Shigeru Miyamoto, who is a master video game designer. Uh, legend in the industry has always said a delayed game has the chance to be great but a rush game will always be bad and be bad forever such a good quote and then also um i think maybe mockridge is not understanding that is because they're trying to depict like an industry where video games are still very nascent yes yes you know um a few years on mockridge might realize what the situation is but it's it's so true i mean people buy things because the label says squaresoft oh yeah they they will follow game designers so if we want to go more current to the time which this episode came out back in the 80s the nintendo nintendo used to put the nintendo quality seal of a nintendo seal of quality on every game now Mm -hmm. what that seal meant was really it kind of meant that the game can be played on the NES. It means it worked, right? They yeah. tested it, it worked, it was put on a Nintendo cartridge. Now, back in the 80s, Nintendo was very restrictive. And looking back at it now, people were like, well, they also had 90% of the market share on the NES. People look at it now and they say, that was ridiculous, Nintendo was being so restrictive, they were being controlling, they were doing this, you had to buy the carts directly from Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Nintendo limited the amount of games you could make for the NES in a given year. And 
when you look back in 1987, 88, 89, 90, you're like, why the heck would they do that? Let these game game developers make money and make games. It's quality control. It's quality control. And they didn't realize that in the 1980s, the video game market collapsed and almost went away completely because companies would just rush out video games. And we call that in the industry, we call it shovelware because it's garbage. Yeah. And they would just rush out video games and they would be terrible. Most famously, now the video game industry was already dying, but E.T. is typically considered, the E.T. game that was tied into the movie, was typically considered the game that kind of destroyed the industry and almost put it out of business. And the these reason These are the why, ones where there's some giant pit of these in yes, the desert somewhere, right? Yes, 100% legitimate. There is a That's landfill. A they found yeah. it. And E.T., they made more E.T. cartridges than there were Ataris in production, <laughs> out in the world. Good Lord. Which... That means it. Ha- that means that game would have had to have higher than a hundred percent what we call attach rate, which right. means if you own the console, you own. How the likely game. are you to buy this thing? Yeah. So the best video games of all time in terms of attach rate max out at like a thirty percent attach rate with with games like <laughs> they, with with games like Mario Kart Eight. Right, and they predicted one hundred and ten percent attach rate, yes. which is impossible. So anyway, um, what we're getting at here is that it is about the games and it is about the quality of the game, but. This is also very current to what the 80s were. And Nintendo was had really sinister kind of restrictive business practices. So that's probably what's kind of carried over into where the mentality around Mockridge comes from. Yeah. That their strength is in the boardroom, he says. That their strength is the contract that you're a work-for-hire employee. And he says to Edward Nima, you're a work-for-hire employee, so everything you create, we own. So that's kind of all that. Right. So in this way, Mockridge represents like every corporate empty suit that has yeah. ever existed who does not stand, does not understand the artist. Yeah. Yes. Or the artistry. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And Riddler then relents saying that Riddler, Edward Nigma then relents. Whoa, saying, whoa, whoa. Know, Spoiler. Right? He fights back. <laughs> he fights back with Mockridge saying that they're kind of nothing without his genius. And then Mockridge drops essentially the line of the episode. Well, if you're so smart, then why aren't you rich? And then we cut two years later. We're in the Wayne boardroom. This reminded me almost exactly of the setup for Clock King. Oh, very similar. Very similar. Especially with Except Nigma has done nothing wrong. No. Clock King, at least, we were like, wait, what was his what's his business been up to? He's getting sued for twenty million. Yeah, 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 yeah. Nigma yeah. here is is in the right, but yeah. it is like, okay, similar thing. You're shuffled out of your job, yeah. and it's a big jump in time later. Yeah. Yes. Big jump in time. Two years later, we're at the Wayne boardroom. Mockridge is pitching to Bruce Wayne and Lucius Fox. Pretty much about the continued success of Competitron Games. Uh, Bruce and Fox are both kind of like ready to fall asleep <laughs> while they're listening to him talk. He's over the sales pitch and he mentions that he just wants to buy the company so that it brings thousands of jobs to Gotham City. Right. That's the only thing Bruce cares about. Yes, he could yes. care less what this company is. Yeah. Like, oh, jobs for people here are great. Great. He wants jobs in the city. They could really use the jobs. And, you know... In his kind of whole pitch of things, Mockridge is talking pretty much about the the merchant merchandising, merchandising. That, that goes along with the Minotaur game, and that they built a Minotaur amusement park. Which once again, Jordan and I will ask ourselves <laughs> the same question we always ask: Why would you do that? Riddler got to it before Joker could. Yeah, he did. It's like, yeah, imagine the Joker taking. Well, that's a Minotaur park. Oh, I need this. And then we see on the ticker behind them, and on a billboard out in the street, we see a riddle that calls out to Mockridge: Why do multi-million dollar deals break down in the wasteland. Mockridge then concerned hurries off and rushes out of the office and Bruce Wayne turns around and he sees the riddle. We have to be reminded of Cape and Cow conspiracy, which of is actually course. the first time we see these kinds of riddles in these episodes. Um, of course, that character is Wormwood. Wormwood's riddles are simplistic and childlike and kind of easy to answer. Yeah. Riddler's riddles are cryptic and sinister and weird even this first one is very weird and very specific very specific and weird yes we cut to the bat cave jordan's favorite character uh dick grayson robin is playing a game on the bat computer while bruce wayne is like pondering the riddle and pacing around the bat cave we see alfred walk in with the bat suit and then he remarks that it must be some game if it's worth tying up a 50 million dollar computer yikes yeah yeah Exactly. Um, I feel like that's just an arbitrary number. Oh yeah, they're, they're just like, yeah, it's a fifty million. How computer. much is the back computer? Fifty 
$50 million. <laughs> right. So I think I know what Robin is doing in this episode. Unfortunately, I think it's also the most annoying Robin has ever been in the series. Yeah. Um, Robin is in this episode because he represents the youth, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The youth are playing video games, yeah. right? So Robin then becomes like the video game expert. Mm-hmm. Even if it's something like an Atari-level video game, he's going to be the expert there. Yeah. Robin is also here because, if you remember, and I'm not sure how much 66 Batman you've watched. Even I've not seen a lot. Mm-hmm. But in the Riddler episodes of the 66, Robin was always the one that solved the riddles. Mm -hmm. I don't know why that is, and maybe that's a joke from an episode I didn't see, but it was always like Batman would read the riddle, and like he'd ponder it, and then Robin would be like, holy smokes, Batman, it means this. Yeah. Right? And that was like reliably what it was every time you saw a Riddler episode. So I think they're bringing him back here, and if you're not, uh, if you're so smart, why, why aren't you rich, as almost like a callback to the 66 of being like, Robin innately understands something about the Riddler's riddles that Batman doesn't. Well, also, too, if you think about it, right, and I think that's awesome, But and at the same time, if you think about it this way, this is the first time Batman's been back on TV since yeah. the 66. Right. So mm-hmm. you're going to want to, you know, you're going to want to give a tip of the cap to the people who grew up watching the 66 show who are now showing the cartoon to their children. Totally. And then also watching Batman 89, uh, the best Batman movie, and uh, Batman Returns back to back. (laughs) Absolutely. Like we did as children. That's right. Uh, Robin shows that Alfred that it's the best game. It's called Riddle of the Minotaur, and we hear some, as we can say, some Mario sounds as Robin makes his way through the game's maze. He gets to the riddle, uh, which he gets wrong, and then the hand of fate comes after him. Uh, he pretty much tells him, and then we see ba- Batman, he's now Batman, is now pondering the riddle that he saw on the billboard. Robin is picked up by this hand of fate, which uh, kind of takes him to another place in the maze because he got the, the riddle incorrect. Because Alfred is the one who actually points out, he's like actually on a globe, a curve line. So the riddle is, it's it's pretty much saying that on a globe, what what's the, you know, the shortest distance between two points on a globe. Right. And Robin chooses a straight line. And Alfred goes, I believe on a globe, it would be a curved line. And that's one of the options you could choose. And Robin chooses incorrectly. Yeah. This first riddle that we see in the game actually teaches us something very important about all of the Riddler riddles, which is that the simplest answer is not the most correct. Of course. Right. Because most riddle guessers would be right. Most riddle guessers would say the obvious answer is probably the one is correct. We see the Riddler tries to make you think a little bit differently. Right. He wants to show you how smart he is. Exactly. That is the hallmark of all his riddles. Because it's a two-step process. That's it's right. It's not just he, the one answer. He will never make it the obvious thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then Batman's pondering the riddle in the background. He goes, doesn't Mockridge own a club called the Wasteland? To which Robin points out that the Wasteland in the game is a dead end, which we will kind of find out that the Wasteland in the show is a little bit of a dead end as well. Yeah. And it's, um, it's th- at this moment where they realize that Mockridge might be in trouble. Yeah. So he, Batman literally picks up the Robin suit and he's like, get, like pretty much telling him to get suited up. We got to go. Then we cut to the wasteland. It's a nightclub. It's nighttime. Mockridge walks into his office to find, well, we know it's Edward Nigma sitting at his desk. Mockridge tells Nigma that there's nothing he can do to stop this deal with Bruce Wayne. And Nigma understands that. He's like, I know you can't do that. But he has come with a proposition for Mockridge. Mockridge thinks that he'll come up with some new game to help Competitron out because I imagine Competitron's not doing as well as they were if they're looking right. to get bought this, out. This one game is still all they have years yeah. later. But Nigma, who we now see is dressed as the Riddler, says, no, this puzzle is far more than any mere game. And he brings out a set of trick rings. <laughs> and Riddler challenges Mockridge to solve the riddle puzzle and then they'll talk. Mockridge starts to try to like solve this ring puzzle but he cannot. And he ends up kind of getting himself stuck in the rings as though they were like handcuffs. Mockridge asks if this is some kind of attempt at extortion, but it's not. The Riddler has no interest in money. He goes, he tells him flat out, I have no interest in money, but he wants Mockridge. He wants Mockridge. That's what he wants. He wants to get him. And we see a zoom in on the Riddler and it's a really creepy kind of shot. Yes. So we changed the art style. We've mm-hmm. actually only done this a handful of times on the show. Yeah. This is a different animation style. It's actually a much older animation style than Batman the Animated Series. You actually saw this a lot with the old Warner Brothers yes. cartoons where it is essentially a matte finish animated yeah. frame yeah. where just one element is animated, mm-hmm. right? So we saw this with Two-Face once, the Two-Face close-up where just like his eye was moving back and forth. Uh, for the Riddler, it's the mouth. 
I think, in this. Yes, the mouth. Um, and it almost has like this kind of grainy, super dark quality. And it makes the Riddler look so sinister and yeah. ominous. We actually have two moments uh, similar to this in tone. Not with the matte finish, but we had the moment earlier where the shadow was across his eyes. They were just like two little white dots in the mm -hmm. darkness, mm -hmm. which is very scary. Mm -hmm. And then you had this, uh, finally, this close-up here. I actually think this moment happens a, a little bit later. This is actually sort of at the end of the episode's Act 1. Yes. This is right before the first uh, commercial break. Yes. Uh, when he says, uh, you know, uh, intruders or whatever, gatecrashers have to deal with the Riddler, yeah. right? We have that ultra close-up with like that paint finish. It is such a welcome to the show yeah. moment. Yeah. Behold, I am the Riddler. The other thing I want to mention here is that the Riddler is specifically not interested in money, which I think is awesome. Mm -hmm. I see now why this character is so difficult to write for, yeah. because his motivation is so beyond the motivation of the other villains. He essentially doesn't really want revenge, and he doesn't want money. No. He wants, he to wants you to play his game. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is really hard to do as a setup multiple times, and it's hard to structure an episode that way, but it is so sinister and cool. Yeah, it's it's great, and it's a great use of the character. I and totally again, he agree. wants Mockridge maybe to kill him, but he... I think the original plan was to get him in the maze. Oh, I think so. Before Batman and I Robin mean, show up. Technically, he does. But, you know. Right, but as the prize. As, yeah, as, <laughs> as a prize, exactly. At this point, we see the Riddler's goons who are nameless and pointless. Well, not and, pointless. And huge. And just big nameless Big heavy guys. hitter goons. Yeah, big, big tough guys. Uh, they grab Mockridge as Batman and Robin crash through a stained glass skylight in another part of the club. They notice that the room they're in is empty. And then the Riddler calls to them, oh, bat something or another. I love it, that. Isn't it? Yeah, he goes, oh, bat something or another. Isn't it? Who invited you? And then he says that for gate crashing, as you just said, they have to match wits with the Riddler. Yeah, right. That's the act one closer. That's the close up with yep. the matte paint finish is, is right there. It's very good. Um, very classic Warner Brothers. So good. Too. I also love how fucking smug he is, He's, right? Oh. It's bat something or other, isn't it? Yeah. I just... He just doesn't care. No, he doesn't. It's so good. He think because he thinks he's smarter than literally everyone, right. and that's is, his ultimately his downfall and, and, as well. But ultimately, he does outsmart everyone. He does, and I love Batman too, though, because uh, we'll talk more about how Batman thinks about outside the box at the end of the episode. But basically, every Riddler episode's the same. Yeah. You actually have to get him to outsmart himself. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Which is awesome. Yeah, I love that. Batman doesn't even like take a second. He knows it's Nigma immediately. <laughs> right. Which impresses the Riddler a little bit. And then he sends his goons after Batman and Robin, who do a pretty good job fighting them off. And then Riddler then activates some kind of like lights, which I gather are some sort of like strobe lights or maybe something to use to confuse them. And the lights start to explode because they kind of overload the chandelier they're on yeah, it's, uh, as it some spins kind of around. Weird chandelier trap. Yeah, I don't know yeah, what's going yeah, on yeah. there. And the lights start to explode and Batman and Robin continue to fight off the goons successfully. Uh, we have a... <laughs> I was like, I can only describe this. <laughs> and the flowers are still standing moment. I love Ro that trick, but I can never get it to work. Yeah, which is actually great because he doesn't get it to work, which allows right. him to trip the goon up. Uh, Robin <laughs> pulls the uh, tablecloth out from underneath the goon is on a table, which throws him off the table. I'll give Robin a pat on the back for this yeah, it's one. A good one. And Any it's even sideways reference to Pete Venkman gets a, gets yeah, a pass for me. Yeah, you get the pass. Um, the light then the lights then start to throw like fiery metal all over the place as this thing like explodes. Uh, the Riddler chains Mockridge to the door on the way out, and then Robin saves Batman's skin by whirling a goon into another goon as the lights fall on the ground. Like he's got the goon on like a like a tray, like yeah. a like a push cart. Right. And the Riddler shoots Robin with a giant Chinese finger trap. And Mockridge is dragged away. So Riddler pretty much says, well, can you save two people at the same time? And he puts Robin in a giant, I, I, I guess it's a giant finger trap, but it takes over yeah, his whole body. He says it's his, his variation on the Chinese finger trap or yeah, something whatever, like that. Yeah, whatever so, it is. Yeah, we already Chinese know he, finger puzzle. he has like these puzzle-themed yeah, weapons he's going to use. Everything. Robin's also on fire. Yes, <laughs> Robin is on fire. <laughs> Batman runs into the streets as Riddler's car escapes with Robin like on his shoulder on fire in the Chinese finger trap. Yeah, I like how Riddler plays the situation. He knows Batman's going to choose Robin. Of course, of um, course. So he gets away with Mockridge. Yeah. Yes. We then cut to the Batmobile. Robin oh, I'm sorry. We get a great moment where the Riddler's car drives away. Did yeah. you catch that license plate? Yeah, what is it? It's uh, Four question four marks. Four question marks, yep. Just a nice little cool vanity plate moment. I like it. Because Batman actually looks to see if he can clock the license plate. And it's like, nope. Nope. Fuck you, Batman. No, he can't. <laughs> 
So then we cut to the Batmobile driving away. Robin questions Batman how he knew it was Nygma, and Batman figures that the creator of the Minotaur game was the one who went after Mockridge. He did his research on the company and explains that he found a man named Edward Nygma and how the name, the Riddler, is almost a play on words of his name, Enigma, which is like a big aha moment for Robin, and it satisfies the educational requirement for this episode. And he's like, <laughs> oh yeah, an Enigma, like a joke or a riddle, right? Yes, a puzzle yeah, or a riddle. Little, a little behind the eight ball there, yeah, Robin. Well, well done, Robin. Um, and then as they're driving over the bridge, they can see that the lights of the city are like flashing oddly, and Robin what a points cool out, moment. very cool. I like yes. this a lot. Robin like points it out and Batman stops the car. He gets out and he attaches what we will later know as a palm top computer. Yeah. Okay. Sure. To his glove. Do we even see this thing again? Uh, I don't know if we see it again in the maybe, series. Maybe we do. But we I see don't it in know. this episode. Thank God he has it this episode. He should use it in every episode. Correct. It's really powerful. It's basically the internet. Yeah. It's, <laughs> basically yeah, has pretty the internet much, on his has, cell phone glove. He's pretty much has Google. Yeah. Uh, Batman then indicates that the flashing light is Morse code which he uses the uh, palm top computer to decode it. We then go to Gotham lighting and power. Another cut. Riddler was in control of the lights, flickering to get, I guess, Batman's attention. I, I maybe I don't. I, that's what we can assume. Yes, he says as much. Yeah, and he's going after Batman now because Batman knows who the Riddler is, which was very astute by Batman. Yeah, well, I think it's, you know, it's twofold. He definitely wants to lure them into the game. But yeah, actually, so weirdly, he is concerned about his identity. And actually, that will become the plot of the next Riddler episode, What is Reality, where Edward Nygma is basically trying to erase himself so he's not caught um, because he... He gets away at the end of this episode. What? I know. No, I I can't believe that. (laughs) And because... Obviously, because Batman knows who the Riddler is, uh, he'll have to get Batman and Robin out of his way. So, it's another riddle. When is the Minotaur's owner high as an elephant's eye? Robin indicates that Mockridge owns the Minotaur, right? So, Mockridge is the one who's the Minotaur's owner, but is stumped about the elephant's eye. To which Batman says, this is a reference to an old song that's before Robin's time. So the song they're referencing is Oh, What a Beautiful Morning. From Oklahoma. From Oklahoma, which was 1943. Correct? Yeah, it's a Rodgers and Hammerstein song. Um, this is almost a mistake um, because the show is very careful, Mike, yeah. about not making references to things in a certain period, place, mm-hmm. and time. Mm-hmm. Um, but now they've made a firm reference to Oklahoma, which is a 1943 musical by you know Rodgers and Hammerstein, famously. Um, it is also, maybe the second major reference we've gotten like this, the last one I can think of is uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Yep. yep. It's that and this. I can't think of another time the show really references something that tries to put a hard period on Yeah, this. I don't know. But it's it's very weird. It also, you know, sets it in, in a different in a different time period than the show kind of exudes. Right. right. So if this was just before Robin's time, I mean, conceivably we could still be in the 50s, but now it's like, okay, we're getting a little soupy. Yeah, I mean, that's way outside of his time. It's the 50s. And the the song has a, has a line. The corn is as high as an elephant's eye, and Robin doesn't get it, but Batman asks for another word for corn, and he goes, maze. So another word for corn is maze, which indicates... The maze. It's a little hokey, but is. we'll take it. it is. <laughs> what is he saying? He's corny or something? Come uh, on, man! Yeah. Don't have a cow. This is. I, is this the first of the puns? Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As in the riddle of the Minotaur, uh, which has an amusement park and a maze. We then see that Batman and Robin have made their way to the riddle of the Minotaur attraction at the amusement park. Batman and Robin get to the maze, which shows the Riddler on a screen. He indicates that Mockridge is in the center of the maze with a minotaur robot which will kill him in 10 minutes. Riddler lets them in. The door closes behind them. I love that Riddler kind of appears on the viewing yes, screen like there. A, yeah, uh, yeah. Very game mastery, yes, very, very arch. Much. Um, uh, Batman Forever kind of picks right up off of this. A little bit. Um, you know, very very much so. I also hate, like, you have 10 minutes to save this man's life. They go so slowly oh, into such, that maze. It's the slowest 10 minutes. They're like, <laughs> all right, I guess we'll do the maze. <laughs> you know, the escape room. So Riddler lets them in. The door closes behind them. Batman and Robin run down the corridors of the maze. Robin asks, Batman asks Robin how far he's gotten in this game on the computer. And Robin admits that he's never made it to the end. He's only made it about halfway through. And then they get to a crossroads. 
and the griffin chases them down. Robin indicates that the griffin just blocks the way in which you came. It's not a big deal. But then the griffin shoots a fireball at them. <laughs> yeah. To which the Riddler pretty much says that he had to make some adjustments to the maze to, I guess, make it deadlier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought, I was like, kind of a flaw here because the griffins blow fucking holes through the walls yeah, of the maze, but that's all right. Yeah, it's whatever. I also love that this kind of indicates a missing scene. Somewhere in these two years, Riddler got in on Mockridge making his maze and yeah. kind of made some deadly modifications. Yeah, yeah. He, he hacked in. Yeah. Hacked into it. Maybe he had some goons take care of it. Maybe he, he paid the sure joker. Did. Yeah. And then they, they get to, they take a left turn at a sign that says, Losers Ahead. Yeah. Which is the second pun. I think we would see. <laughs> they both almost lose their head by sharp saw blades that shoot out from the balls and they duck and they save themselves. And Batman admits that he's getting both tired of the maze and these awful puns. Which I love. It, it is it is wonderful because it's making fun of the Riddler, but it's also wonderful because it's making fun of the 66 Riddler yep. who did yep. this constantly. Always. Always a pun. Always just... Right. Ugh, because just you would think grown. this more modern Riddler is like a little less apt to the punning, yeah. but um, they're still very much commenting on the Frank Gorshin stuff. Of course. Of course. Uh, they then turn a corner to be met with another griffin and a griffin from an opposite wall. And now Robin lets Batman know that no one has ever made it to the end or the center of the maze. I don't know how Robin knows that, but I'll give it to him. don't know how you could design a game that people can't win. Is he he's saying that no one made it to the center of the maze? Then how the fuck do you win this game? I don't know. How'd it get so popular if no one can win? I think it's, it's, the, it's the thrill of the hunt. I guess so. I mean, clearly we have some missing information about this game. I guess there's some other way to win. Yeah. But again, forecasting here, I love that Batman is the one that gets to the center of the maze because the way to win is to cheat. Is to be Batman. <laughs> and then they're sandwiched between these two griffins. They both duck into a hallway and let the griffins take each other out. Batman, you know, tells Riddler that he's willing to tear the place apart. And then they come to yet another crossroads, but we see a sign that's in Arabic. Batman uses his, um, his palm-top computer to translate the riddle, which way to the eating place. They don't know what that means, so they go left, which is the wrong way. And then they see the hand of yeah, fate the chase hand, them the down. The hand shows up again. The hand of the flying hand of fate chases them down. Robin indicates to Batman what the hand of fate means and what it is, and he goes, "Oh no, it's the hand <laughs> of fate. It's from the game." God damn it, Robin! Yeah, Robin, <laughs> shut up. It chases them down, but then they dodge into a hallway, and the hand passes them by. They go back to the crosswords. Uh, the crosswords, geez. They go back to the crossroads and Batman indicates to Robin that in the Arab world... Something that would not be scripted like that today. Definitely not. The In the Arab world, you always eat with your right hand. Thanks. Is that, a, is that true? I have okay. no idea. Whatever. I have no idea. I'm not even going to say that. It's it, This is like... What if is, you're a left-handed Iranian? What's going I, on there? I don't know. <laughs> All I'm saying is this is what the show says. All right. So we're going to follow the show's we logic. We won't question it. I'm not questioning it even though we are questioning it. We're just going to say... questioning it a little. Make the puzzle work i guess right. okay. uh, maybe they could have tried something different but batman and robin get to a door that has three keys but i guess you know you're at the point where you have all these different riddles and they get they see now there's three keys on the wall and there's a door the keys are marked a c and d batman just takes any key off the wall he takes the d key and he tries to unlock the door and then two spinning blades get thrown at them <laughs> and just nearly missing them right Batman then goes to hit to take the A key and put it in, but Robin stops him. He says that the A key will have three blades and they need to use the C key. It's a musical puzzle. All right, musician Mike, does this check out? Yeah, it absolutely checks out. What's so, the deal here? So, okay. In, Something about sharps. So this is how it works. Uh, musical keys, for those of you, this is really rudimentary stuff, and I'm sorry for you musicians out there, but musical keys... Oh, I didn't know. So Yeah, it's, so yeah. musical keys, if you're in the key of something... Uh, notes in that scale are different based on, you know, so in order to, to do a scale, musical scale, yeah. up and down, right? Based on whatever key you're in, certain notes have to be either sharped or flatted to make the intervals between the notes make sense. Okay. Okay. So in this so case, in they're the looking for a key that has no, no sharps. sharps. Because they're getting hit with sharp objects. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, exactly. So, harsh so lesson. In, in music, a sharp a sharp sign raises a note a half step when you perform when you play it, and a flat sign lowers it. So, in the key of A, in the key of D there are two sharps, C sharp and F sharp in the key of key of D. In the key of A you have three sharps. You have C sharp, you have F sharp, C sharp, 
and uh, F sharp, F F sharp, C sharp, and G sharp in the key of in the key of A. So they would have been flattened and killed if three blades came at them. But in the key of C, there are both no sharps nor are there any flats. Got it. So it is. Uh, that's why the key of C is you just play all the white notes, all the white keys on the piano give okay. you the key of C. Got it. So then uh, they use the key of C. This puzzle is so unforgiving because com- one wrong key, you're dead. Also, like it's. It's, there's no instructions. Yeah, there's no instructions. And there's no, like, if there was, like, just put a, a staff on the wall. Put, like, a grand staff on the wall. So at least you can you can know that it's a musical puzzle. Correct. This like would not something. be good game design for D&D. Bad game design. Right. So they open the door with no problem. And uh, even for me as a musician, uh, it took me a minute to really get what they were doing. Like, Robin had to, like, start explaining it before I understood because I thought it was really obtuse. Uh, sorry. And more <laughs> puns with the sharp blades. And once again, this is more education, right? Yeah, we're teaching right. kids about music. We're teaching kids about the quote unquote way in the cultural aspects of, of you know, countries that are Arab. Um, and then they, they go through another door and they, they see another griffin. And Batman and Robin continue as Batman picks up a shard of glass on the floor or sharp shard of metal, I guess. Uh, they get to another riddle. Uh, this is the one that Robin failed when he was playing the game at home. He with chooses the three kinds of lines. With the three yeah. kinds of lines with the shortest distance between two points. And we hear Riddler say, one minute, Batman. Batman has no time for this trash anymore. He's done. Yeah. So he just willingly takes the wrong path, the one that we know is 100% wrong, which is like the zigzag line. And this calls the hand of fate to him to snatch him up and take him away. Which he wants. Which he wants. Because then Batman jumps onto the hand of fate, cuts it open with a shard of glass or metal, and then uses his palm-top computer to <laughs> essentially hotwire and override the programming on the hand. Yeah. My reading here is that it's because Robin's original answer was technically correct. Mm-hmm. And the, Ridgel- the Riddler's a dick for not accepting more than one answer. Yeah. The shortest distance between two points is a straight line. Yeah. Especially in a maze. Yeah. However, in a maze, you can't take the shortest distance. No. But you can if you jump on top of the hand of fate. Mm-hmm. So again, this is an example of, I agree, I think the Riddler is smarter than Batman, but Batman doesn't care about the rules. No. Riddler's only the smartest guy if you stay in the box. Yes. Batman says, no, fuck you. Yeah. Yeah. I don't need the box. Right. So Batman jumps on this thing. He's flying it around. He flies down. He picks up Robin and... Batman indicates that he linked it to his computer. Riddler accuses Batman of cheating. Like major hacks, man. He'd even put in a cheat code. <laughs> Batman essentially uses a cheat code. Batman's which is game genie. Which I will tell you this much. Cheat codes are very much a part of video game history and are very much a part of video games. So this all kind of still fits within the parameters of sure. how the theming of a video game What do game people works. do the second a video game comes out? They look for all the bugs and they see how they can break the game. That's how, part of playing. Exactly. I mean, there's a whole community based around speedrunning that does exactly yeah. that. My favorite thing to do is to watch games I've played hundreds of hours through people beat in 45 minutes. Or less. Yeah. 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 The new Zelda game came out. People have already beaten it in 90 minutes. Yeah. That's less than a Marvel movie. And by doing amazing things that people yeah. think of as cheating, but I think is just as ingenious. Just like, yeah, I rubbed up against this wall until yeah. it led me to the last section of the game. Yep. And I hit this one block and I rewrote the code on the fly. And it counts as a win. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. It's incredible. It's a really, really cool stuff. And... Batman indicates that he doesn't... Uh, Batman takes the... He flies the hand to the center of the maze and then he hops off it and the Riddler pretty much says that he's like cheating fate when he cheats and he goes, I, I don't believe in fate. <laughs> Which I find awesome. And Riddler says, well, there is one more riddle. I have billions of eyes but live in darkness. Millions of ears yet only four lobes. I have no muscle yet I rule in two hemispheres. This is with Mockridge chained to the foot of the Minotaur yes, about to split him in they two. They found yeah. Mockridge. He's chained up to a table. The Minotaur's ready to kill him. Yeah. And he asks Batman, what am I? And Batman goes, that's easy. That's the human brain. Mm-hmm. Essentially, you know, millions of receptors, lobes, two hemispheres of the brain. And it's the only thing that Nigma respects is intelligence. Nigma calls it a lucky guess and commands the Minotaur to destroy them anyway. They save Mockridge as the Minotaur chases them into a corner. Batman then asks Nigma, and this isn't really a riddle, so sorry, Batman. This is not your best moment in terms of like, in terms of in terms of like jawing with a villain. How can you take out a Minotaur with a single blow? 
And Batman then says, like this. And he commands the Hand of Fate to pretty much knock the Minotaur through a wall. And the Minotaur gets up and tries to come after him, but then it totally collapses in front of them. Yeah, it's awesome. Batman then says, you're finished. But Nygma shows up on the screen and indicates that he's already on a plane leaving Gotham City as they speak. Classic Riddler fashion. And the thing that maybe proves how smart he is, just like, oh yeah, you beat me. That's great. Uh, I'm not there. Yep. Uh, Have fun with that. He wasn't in a control room or anything. He left. Yeah. I love it. Which actually, again, if if nothing else, puts him so far beyond the other Riddlery type characters like Clock King and Wormwood who are both subdued because they've stuck around. Yep. Yep. You know, Wormwood actually was on site for all yep. his riddles, which was a huge mistake. Riddler's like, oh, yeah, you want, I mean, I'm not there. I'm gone. See ya. Bye. Bye. Bye, Batman. We then get a newspaper transition, and we see that Wayne has bought Competitron. The Mayor Hill little tag yeah, like, in there. It's a good idea. Or something like that, right? <laughs> oh, fuck you, Mayor yeah, Hill. Yeah, they're like, and I think Alfred says something, or Robin says something, but I think the mayor likes it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and Batman, well, Bruce Wayne says, yeah, well, it's bringing five, five and a half million dollars a year in jobs to Gotham City. So, of course, the mayor is going to like it. This episode has one of my favorite endings of any episode. Of course. Yeah, I think it's actually, it's an excellent ending yeah. uh, to this episode. And Robin pretty much comments on like, oh, well, you know, the guy was a jerk or whatever, but he got he got away. I can't believe he got away with $10 million. Yeah, got away with a cool $10 million. Yeah, kind of. How's he fair. enjoying that $10 million, Mike? Not not very much. Not uh, much. He is living like a prisoner in his own home. Yeah. Terrified that Edward Nigma is going to get him at some point yeah, because these, he's still out there. These final shots, the guy like twists like six or seven locks in his mm-hmm. apartment. It's dark. It's terrifying. It's he's walking. got a shotgun. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing to see him paranoid in his own home, afraid to sleep. And Batman He's even afraid to like take his slippers off next yep, to the bed. Like yep, he jumps into the bed and yep, pulls up the covers. Yep, yep. Like a kid. Like he's trying to hide from the monster underneath his bed. Mm-hmm. And Batman says, you know, he says something along the lines of like How much is a good night's sleep worth? Yeah. Which is kind of the answer to if you're so smart, why aren't you rich? Yeah. yeah. Well, how much is a good night's sleep worth? Yeah. I think so scary. So scary. And it reminded me, this ending reminded me of the best of the Twilight Zone episodes. Yep. Yep. In fact, the best Batman Taz episodes remind me of the Twilight Zone because they are totally self-contained. Mm-hmm. The Marvel Universe, which we both love. Yeah. In fact, you're more of a Marvel guy, right? Uh, comic books, sure. Yeah. The Marvel Universe specializes in... Movies too, yeah. Uh, serializ- serialization. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you bought this comic and it's a great story, but I'm also selling you the next one yeah. as I'm telling you yeah. this story. Yeah. DC, particularly with the Batman animated series, says like, yeah, we'll, we'll get you back, but we want to make each one individual unto itself. Yeah. You could continue, but it has that Twilight Zone punch mm-hmm. where it's like, this is a perfect short story and here's the unsettling finish. This happens quite a bit. And I also think that works for Batman as a pulp comic character. It sure does. And it's, you know, it's very much like there, we complain a lot as viewers in general, not about this show, but in general about people who, you know, consume entertainment, you know, about the over sequelization of everything. Yeah. Batman's one of the few characters that I'm always okay with sequels. Same thing with like Indiana Jones because of where they got where those characters come from. Right, Pulp Origin. They're, yeah. you know... Or matinee. Matinee, adventure, adventure serials yeah. and stuff. That's mm-hmm. the type of character these guys are. So it's cool when they have a lot, and they have a lot of, you know, just one-shot stories, and I really, really like that. Yeah. What are your uh, closing thoughts on, if ep- you're so smart, why aren't you rich? I think this episode's great. I think it's a great introduction of the Riddler. I think it's one of the better episodes we've watched. It's among the best that we've watched. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Um, I always liked the Riddler and I always liked the puzzles and all that stuff. It's just a fun, different type of Batman villain. He does the riddle thing way better than the other two characters that have already kind of done it right. in the animated series. And it feels like it's there's a payoff. It's like we've waited so long to see this guy and when we see him, ah, oh, this is cool. Yeah, It's like eight weeks into its broadcast run. Right. So that means if you're watching the show every single day, it was like eight weeks in. Like two months in so this is airing probably sometime around like november-ish mm-hmm. you know yeah and it's a huge deal he's one of the biggest hitters and if you were someone who was even had a kind of you know passing knowledge of who batman was you know one of the questions you're probably going to be asking is oh when the, when's the riddler showing up yeah you know and then the riddler shows up and he has such a great episode that is so scary and so so much of a thriller and terrifying especially at the end but it's also very grounded and very real right so uh it's it's a very um real fear yeah as opposed to a big flying bat monster absolutely 
Uh, for me, uh, I appreciate Batman in this episode because he allows the ending to come to pass. Mm-hmm. Uh, meaning he understands uh, Mockridge has done wrong and kind of deserves his fate. In other words, Batman kind of accepts a gray ending, yeah. which doesn't usually happen in the animated series. Usually, like, the villain is apprehended and justice is served. At the end of this episode, it's kind of like, well, the Riddler's at large, and I like it that way. Yeah. Right? Because, yeah, Mockridge gets away with his huge payday, but also he can never sleep again. Maybe not for another day in his entire life. And Batman thinks that that, too, is justice. Yeah. Because, yeah, the Riddler is a fugitive from the law. But Mockridge also can't be, you know, settled no. ever again. He's always going to be unsettled. living in fear, which I think is terrific. Um, I totally cherish the Riddler episodes. I think they're just wonderful. This one is is particularly good, and I'm excited for the other two. Actually, the next one's coming up not too far yeah, from now. Yeah, soon. Um, what is Reality, which is a, a great episode. I appreciate how Riddler's intellect is portrayed. Yeah. I also love how he is defeated. Yeah. Because the Riddler is not a villain you punch. No. Right? And the Riddler is not a villain whose schemes you thwart in a typical way. You don't really outsmart the Riddler. You find a way for him to outsmart himself. You lean into the fact that he is so pompous and he thinks he is so smart that when he makes a little mistake, it becomes his own undoing. Right? Um... I, I love how Batman exploits him here because Batman refuses to play by the rules and the Riddler gets frustrated and his scheme kind of falls apart. Um, we'll see that more as we go forward. Just the Riddler thinks he's so smart and that it's like the thing that makes the Riddler scary, his intellect and his superiority, right, is also the thing that defeats him. It's what makes him weak, um, that he can't accept the fact that there could be a mistake, that he could have erred in some way. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's really neat. Um I'm really looking forward to covering more Riddler episodes. Unfortunately, there just aren't too many, yeah. but I, I think this is great. Also, big shout out to John Glover, who I think does a terrific job, not at all doing the Frank Gorshin performance at all, kind of making it its own thing, more derived from the comics, and delivering the character with, I think, what is there on the, in the text, which is he's got a certain savoir-faire, right? And uh, he has kind of a mm, smarminess to him that is a little feminine. Yeah. And I think that is so appropriate and makes her a really cool character. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, you know, and I think that really works for the Riddler. I think this is an excellent episode. In terms of ranking, I don't know. Uh, it's towards the top, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think it's in my top 10. I don't think it, it's a top 10. Candidate for top 20, but yeah. it probably just misses it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's really, really good and I uh, very, very much enjoyed it. Uh, and the next time you're taking us through Joker's Wild. Joker's Wild. Is this uh, where? How is this? How do you like this one in terms of Joker appearances on the show? It is not as strong as Laughing Fish, but it's yeah. a, it's stronger than most of the pack of the other ones we've seen. Very it's, cool. it's pretty good. Better than Last Laugh. <laughs> yeah, they're all better than Last Laugh and Christmas with a Joker, which are pretty low ranking yes. episodes. But Joker's Wild is very good. I think people really like Joker's yeah, Wild. Yeah, Joker's Wild is awesome. It is still not the top Joker episode. No. We're getting no, there. We're getting, we're getting there. there. The man who killed Batman. That's right. Uh, and thank you for joining us. This was the Batman Tastic Cast for Jordan Hugh. I'm Mike Staub. Thank you and see you next time. Same bat time, same bat channel. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Batman Tasticast. If you want to support the show, you can find us on social media at Batman Tasticast, or you can leave a review, give us a five star rating, leave some comments, reach out to us directly, or follow us and subscribe to us on the podcatcher of your choosing. Once again, that just makes the show that much more visible. Thanks again for listening, and we'll catch you next time.